Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Daph, what's going on? What's going on? How's your week been? It's been good, but I'm legit shook because it's already March. <laughs> yeah, buddy, it's already March. I'm like, we'll be two two weeks away from spring break, so I'm yeah, count, counting that down. <laughs> That's like really scary for me because you know I'm collecting data, and data collection is supposed to end in May. But I'm like, yo, I haven't done everything I'm supposed to do. I need a little bit more time. <laughs> <laughs> Go collect that data so you can be finished and get that degree and move on to the next step. Shoot. Yeah, I don't know. I might have to come back in the fall a little bit. I just just feel like I have so much to do and two months doesn't seem like a a lot of time to do it. Yeah, yeah, I know the feeling. Um, But yeah, I guess you'll gauge when you get closer to that that end, the deadline to see where you're at. Yeah. Start writing things up. And sometimes with qualitative work too, you start to notice the the themes and the trends and you feel like you got enough yeah things start to be a little repetitive so that's true that's true and I think that's what I want to do I'm actually gonna sit down this week and just try to focus on like what what's sticking out to me and what do I need to focus in on more over the next two months like be a little bit more strategic with my time yeah, kind of like a like like a mid midway evaluation. Mm-hmm. See where you're at. Mm-hmm. And see see what this story at. is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's a good strategy. But okay, I just gotta tell you one thing that's coming up in my research that I did not think I was gonna talk about mm-hmm. is so you know I'm doing research on a historically black school that has undergone demographic change in the recent years. There's been like an influx of uh, immigrants actually from Guatemala. Mm child one day i was doing observations i was sitting at a lunch table and it was like six uh six latinx students uh sitting at the table and one of them you know i was just over her and he was like in word like saying it to the other boy like in you ain't do that What's going on here? What is going on here? Yeah. But you can't say nothing. You just got to observe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, I I actually, I started asking the students about that in my interviews and I've gotten some interesting responses. So, Lord. How old are the students? (laughs) They're teenagers. So they're like between like 14 and 18. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's going to be it. That's going to be it. I'm be I'm going to be interested to hear the responses, boy, um, as far as the different perspectives of how yeah, students feel. Yeah, and I, even the Black students, it's surprising because they're like, yo, like, we not like y'all. Like, this is a different time. And I'm like, mm. oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I just listen. I just listen. Yeah, I so said, that's one thing. I, I, I With younger cats that I'll be around and they start throwing it out there and I'm like, Nah, man, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? But they say the same kind of thing. Like, yo, it's not a big deal anymore. Like, oh, I don't know. But it's funny because we're not too far, you know, mm-hmm. from their ages. And yeah. already yeah, they talking this, oh, we, we the old heads. We yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, what's been going on with you? 
Nothing much. Um, like I said, I'm just looking forward to, to spring break. Um, it's in two weeks. And so just counting down those days. Other than that, just been staying busy with the, the usual working mm-hmm. and whatnot. Nothing, nothing crazy been going on. I'm trying to think. Yeah. You going anywhere cool for spring break? Yeah, I'm going going to St. Lucia Ooh. for a week. So we're going to get out this cold and snow that we've been having to some beach. <laughs> well, okay, I'm jealous, but I'm happy for you. I'm sure you deserve it. Oh, yeah, I'm about to run to that, boy. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> and I usually don't go nowhere for spring break. It's like my first time actually taking a trip for spring break. Usually I just kind of stay home and chill for the week. But I was like, let me, let me go ahead and go somewhere this time. Yeah. And bounce. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, all right. So, we got some old Lord news ready to rock? No. <laughs> I'll just play it. Of course we do. All right. Let's get into it. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Okay, so this is a little quick story that's crazy. So um, have you ever heard of self-driving cars? Yeah, I've been hearing about these. Yep. Yeah. Would you would you ever drive one? Uh, No, not now. No. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm just going to say, you know, people got to be careful with these self-driving cars, whether you're behind them or in front, because some recent research from the Georgia Institute of Technology found that state-of-the-art uh, object rec- recognition systems in these self-driving cars have a less accurate detection system for pedestrians of darker skin tones. Oh my goodness. Which means you are more likely to be hit by a self-driving Yo. car if you are dark skinned. Oh my God. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> Black folks cannot win. So we're still we're still more likely to be hit by a self-driving car than white folks. This is crazy. Yo. Yes. Yes. And they said it's because uh, the the people who developed these systems likely did not put are not putting enough like darker skinned uh, images or whatever it is they do. Like they're not feeding that into the system. Therefore, these systems are not able to recognize it as accurately as they could like a white person. My Lord. Racially biased cars now. Like, Racially just... biased cars. <laughs> oh, man. But, you know, crazy. they even said, like, a long time ago, I read reports, like, uh, you know, those self-running water, uh, hand, like, when you wash your hands, like, yeah. the, the faucets, that a lot of them have a difficult time, like, recognizing dark skin as well. So, Yo, so you can't even wash your hands. Can't wash my hands. Can't walk across the street. Just can't do that. And that's wild because... I mean, if one day they definitely need to fix that before, you know, they just start releasing these cars. But even like the legal ramifications, like if it's like your car, if it's a white person they're in it and just hits a black person, like, can they be held criminally liable? Right. Because right? that's that's crazy. Because your car racist. You yeah. might not be, but your car is racist. Your car. <laughs> racist cars. Oh, man. Technology. Okay. Black okay. folks, all that means just be careful when y'all in them streets even more now. I can't even trust the cars. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> speaking of what you can't do while black, um, there's a story of a woman in Massachusetts who called the police on a black man at a mm. dog park because mm-hmm. his dog was aggressively humping hers. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh yeah, I did hear the story, man. I was laughing so hard. I was like, yet another one. I forgot what they call her. Uh, Dog Park Diane. Dog Park Diane. Okay, yeah, I know it was something with a D. Um, that's a wild story too. And I seen the video. She was so mad, like on that same pose, um, phone to the head, yeah. calling the popo. She had a like a little white little sidekick behind her, egging her on. I'm like, bro, you cannot be serious, man. Yeah, it's quite. And the the guy that she called the police on, he's actually an attorney. Um, although that didn't factor into what happened, but it's just he's kind of like, I come here all the time. All the dogs hump each other. It's really not a big deal. And part of the reason that she called the police police is because she ordered him to leave the dog park like she had the authority to do that and when he refused to leave she decided to call the police on him the police didn't do anything there were you know no arrests were made like you know but that's crazy yeah you know what i did notice too what i had a problem with the officer when he came on site and um you know i think the woman had said like he had her hand in his face or something like that and the officer like kind of like supported that argument a little bit he was like well uh-huh. it, can, it can be assault you know when you have your hand in the in the, in the area like this or whatever i'm like what man relax yo like relax. like he was like he was like kind of looking for a reason too you know the, the fact mm-hmm. that he even defended that statement that it mm-hmm. could be assault how is it assault you're not even touching nobody right right Oh. <sighs> okay, Dog Park Diane. Mm-hmm. Um, so Black History Month is over, but I'm pretty sure you saw on social media all of the teachers who had been creating these elaborate door displays to recognize, you know, black people. So they'll have like the Afro doors and stuff like that. Did you ever see any of those? Yeah, yeah. They're actually a lot of them pretty creative and cool. I was like, dang, maybe I should do that tomorrow classroom site. Yeah. You're so cool. You're so funny. <laughs> well, one day before Black History Month ended, a Florida school district required a Black teacher to remove her door display because parents have been, or parents and teachers or whoever, have been making complaints about the district because she created a door display of Colin Kaepernick. And what's the issue with that? Well, some people found a Colin Kaepernick door to be offensive. Uh, They said that uh, or the district made a formal statement and was like, he's uh, they actually said the decisive. They meant divisive figure, (laughs) Um, but he's a divisive figure. And some people see him as having like disrespected our nation and our flag. Oh, man, that's wild, man. That's wild. But if it had been up all month, you couldn't have just waited one day. And so the teacher didn't make a big stink about it. It was a student who tweeted a video of the teacher, like, taking it down because the students helped put it up. Yeah. And it should be about the students if the students help put it up. And that's their piece of, like, artwork or whatever it is. And what's the issue? You know, mm-hmm. they support it. Who cares what the adults really feel? You know, and they're not the ones going to that school and walking through those classroom doors every day. So if the students don't got an issue with it. And then everything else shouldn't be a problem. So, but that's, that's the thing. We don't really know where the complaints came from. Like, some people said that students were complaining, which... It's Florida. I can believe it. Some people said, you know, some teachers were complaining and some people said um, that parents were complaining. But it seems like it came from a lot of places. But one student tweeted uh, and I think it was a white student. She was like, what they won't tell you is that it was actually another teacher that complained. So, Mm. uh, Mm. I bet. I bet. That's wild. Like, leave, leave it up. 
Gotta take the stuff down. So what if most things dealing with black folk are polarizing anyway? Like mm-hmm. I don't think you'll find any <laughs> black figure that everyone just loves, and especially when it comes to white folks. So that's mm-hmm. that's like a silly argument to kind of make them take it down. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, I got one last story, and it's kind of wild. So, um, have you ever seen Black Klansman? Yep, seen Black Klansman. Okay. And, and shout out to Spike Lee. Oh yeah, and shout out to Spike Lee. Okay, well, we have a 21st century Black Klansman uh, because Uh last month, a Black man took over or became the president of a neo-Nazi organization. His name is James Hart Stern. Yes, yes. He took it over. He's the president. But the story with this is he took it over to take it down. Okay, okay. Similar to Black Klansman. Yes. So he found a way to befriend the actual president of this organization. They call themselves the National Socialist Movement, but the name was something else back in like the 70s or the 80s. They changed it. Um, And this particular organization had been implicated in the Charlottesville uh, uh, protest that ended up in, you know, people getting very hurt in 2017. Um, And there's actually a lawsuit against this organization uh, for you know, wrongdoing uh, related to some of the crimes that were committed during the Unite the Right protest. Mm. So he befriended the actual president of the organization and convinced him that if he let Stern, the black man, become president, he can, you know, help him with the lawsuits. But what he actually did is when the guy signed over the organization and, you know, did a sworn affidavit, he actually went to court and accepted responsibility, The made the organization ex- accept responsibility for their part in the Unite the Right thing. Oh, wow. And he's changing the website from like this uh, hate website to like a Holocaust historical website. (laughs) That thing mad, boy. (laughs) They mad. Yeah. So there's a, you know, it's controversy because, you know, the black man is telling one story of how this happened. And then the white president, he or a former president, he's telling another story like, oh, he tricked me. This is not, you know, what we plan to do. Mm -hmm. But either way it go, you know, it's in the Washington Post. And it was like how a black man has outsmarted a neo-Nazi group and became their new leader. So (laughs) (laughs) we're going to put a link to that article. It's a it's a wild story. And the the black man actually was able to gain credibility with this guy because when the black man, he served a little time and it just so happened that his roommate was this uh, neo-Nazi leader who had been arrested uh, in like the 1960s for the murders of three black civil rights leaders. And mm. he became close. It, it was probably like this undercover, you know, operation for him too. But somehow he got the man to sign over the rights to his like power of attorney and the rights to his story. So like, oh, wow. and so, yeah. And so he was able to use that 
to say like, hey, you know, this neo-Nazi leader that I met in jail told me to reach out to you or something like that. So it's it's a crazy story. Yeah, Y'all got to read it. Y'all got to read it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah, check that out. Yeah, that's definitely some old Lord news. Real life, current day Black Klansman. Yes. Two. Yes. I'm yes. sure somebody will pick that up and make another, like, I don't know, maybe like a Netflix series or a documentary yeah. or something. I know that's coming in the works. Yeah, right? I think that would make a good documentary or docu-series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially, like, to see that it, how you did it, like, in today's time. Mm-hmm. All social media and everything is crazy. Yeah, but they sad. They real mm-hmm. sad. Yeah, but they are. <laughs> All right. Well, you know that. Thank you for the old Lord news. Um, and I guess kind of going along those lines of black folks infiltrating white spaces. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, today's topic we have our conversation is with um, Delisha Grant, who is a business attorney um, mm-hmm. and a podcast host and a speaker. Mm-hmm. And pretty much as a lawyer, you know, she's pretty much advised and consulted for work for some uh, top corporations, but also mainly consults for a lot of companies and all Fortune 500 corporations, but also people trying to start things like startups and their own small businesses. And so we bring her on to have a conversation about all of these things, but also how does it affect Black folks in particular as far as trying to get in startups, navigating and working in, in these corporate spaces. And she shares her experience with that. And a lot of interesting conversation, not just dealing with how white folks perceive black folks in these spaces, but also how black folks perceive other black folks in these spaces too, um, which is really a compelling and interesting conversation. I agree. I agree. And this episode is the first of a series of episodes about black business owners, black entrepreneurship for the month of March. So this mm-hmm, is exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll be pretty much our theme for this month. So, and Delisha's starting it off for us. And then you'll see in the next couple of weeks how we continue that theme and, and other ways of other perspectives of mm-hmm. black folks in business. Mm-hmm. It's women history. It's women's history, Mom. So, you know, why not start it off with a strong, powerful woman who's Even making better. these moves? Yes. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> All right. So you ready to get into it now? Mm-hmm. All right. So we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. In recent years, there have been increased efforts to build and sustain businesses within the Black community. This month, BHD will focus our attention on African-American business owners who will share their stories and advice on successfully navigating the entrepreneurial world. Today, we interview Delisha J. Grant, a business attorney, the host of the December 26th podcast, and public speaker. Delisha holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania and a Juris Doctorate from the George Washington University Law School. In her role as a business attorney, Delisha has advised a plethora of companies, from one-person startups to Fortune 500 corporations. During our conversation, we will discuss her experiences as an African-American woman who has successfully navigated both corporate law and corporate America. Additionally, our conversation names the unique obstacles that Black entrepreneurs face and how to overcome barriers to success in business. Welcome, Delisha. I am well. How are you guys doing? Doing well, doing well. Glad to have you on with us today. So happy to be here and appreciative for the opportunity and excited to have this conversation for sure. Yes, very excited. And I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners don't know because they're first time meeting you, but um, Delisha and I go way back. Uh, grew up in church together, good old Word Up Ministries. Way, from- way back. <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, last time I talked to Delisha, she was telling me that she had some very scary videos on VHS (laughs) from us back in the day. (laughs) Listen, we got some vintage footage of Dr. Connor. Okay, I'm talking about like with the low haircut, with the little 
you know, cuts in the side, the whole nine apart. <laughs> you know, like the J.C. Penny shirt with the tie and all that. Yeah. Did he behave in church? Did he behave? He did. I, I as, listen. I'm a little bit older, so I've heard some stories after I left and went to college of what went down. But when I was there, as far as I know, he did behave. Okay. Yes, okay. yes. I was a good Christian boy. <laughs> yeah, wrecking cars, but. <laughs> Uh, too funny, but no, yeah, we're definitely glad to have you on with us today and talk about all that you do and, and provide some valuable insights. But before we even get into any of that, you know, I guess what we like to do with our guests, and then we'll do the same with you, is just to give you opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do and who is Delisha. Sure. So I am a Jersey girl, born and bred through and through. Um, I attended the University of Pennsylvania and college and majored in international relations and started my corporate career and eventually left to go back to law school at the George Washington University Law School. Um, and then have had a, I've had an interesting journey as a lawyer over the past nine years. Um, we'll get into some of that with a mix of litigation and then moving into the startup space with my own practice, uh, working with entrepreneurs and young founders in technology, new media and entertainment. Uh, and pivoted again and sort of merged that world with uh, some corporate work um, that I do. And in addition to all that professional stuff, I am also a podcast host as well. Uh, the December 26th podcast, which we may get into uh, during this conversation. Yeah, for sure. but, uh, It's a motivational show that, you know, shameless plug you, Terrell, have been on uh, recently. So an excellent guest you were. So I do that as well in my spare time, as well as some speaking and, and some other stuff. So just trying to maximize the days and exhaust my potential, which is really what the December 26th podcast is about as well. Mm. Mm, you are a Renaissance woman. Let me tell <laughs> you, how do you do it? How do you Sleep do it? deprived, let me tell you. And we, didn't like, we didn't even get into like, you know, the philanthropy philanthropy that I'm working on with uh, my brother, Demarcus, who serves as uh, the December 26th podcast producer. We're doing some community work as well. But there are days where I'm just like, you know what? Maybe I'm just doing a little bit too much. <laughs> Maybe I'm pushing it <laughs> a little bit too far. But um, I heard uh, Michelle Obama on her book tour, one of the videos that I saw, she said that Barack is not happy unless he has all the plates spinning. And mm -hmm. I felt that on a deep spiritual level, because I think at some point, at some level in my life, that's who I am. <laughs> like I mm -hmm. really enjoy being busy. Um, and I, I'm a firm believer that we often have more potential than we exhaust in this life. Mm -hmm. And it's important for me to feel like I am using both the left and right sides of my brain and using my talents for good um, and setting the appropriate bound boundaries and time for self-care, of course. But I just believe that to whom much is given, much is required. And I'm out here just trying to do my part to leave a mark and also create spaces and open doors for people who look like me as well. Mm. 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 Uh, I felt that. I felt that. <laughs> uh, and you know, it's, it's so true. So I think about myself and how when I have a lot of time on my hand, I get mm -hmm. nothing accomplished. Exactly. Oh, when, yes. when I am doing like 50 million things, it's like I, I'm taking over the world. It's kind of like I, I don't know how to be just not busy and productive at the same time. So I, I definitely feel you. And I try to explain that to people all the time because they're like, I don't know how you do it. I'm like, well, first of all, one way I'm able to do it is that I don't watch a lot of TV. Like, you know, people who 
Um, and I know you guys didn't bring me on here to talk about time management and all that stuff, no, no, but no. you know, people who sit down at night and they, you know, they, they come home from work, they de- decompress, they have dinner and they turn the TV on and that's what they do in the evening. That's not something that I judge, but all of those hours can be spent doing something else. And I'm not saying I don't watch TV at all. We all have our little, you know, stable of shows that we watch. But for me, I just feel like I could be using that time in a different way. So, and when you have a lot of things going on, as you you mentioned, Daphne, you have to make the time work for you. So I know I have these 15 minutes free. What could I be doing right now? Let me send an email to this, you know, potential podcast guest, or let me reach out to this prospective donor, you know, for this philanthropy work. When you've got six hours, just watch TV without really a plan for how to block schedule your life. It becomes, let me just watch this next episode of this reality show or let me just do this. So when you have a lot, there's things that have to get done and people are counting on you. They're waiting for that episode to be released. They're waiting for a response on this email, et cetera. It, it encourages you to do what you need to do because now it's not just about you. It's about a lot of other people. And it's something that it took me a while to learn because I'm a very private person by nature. Um, so I, I wasn't out there talking to people about, you know, everything that I have going on. And it got to a point that I started to be more open about it with those people who I, A, I could trust and also B, who I felt like would hold me accountable. And when that audience is out there, it also motivates you to get up and, and do what you need to do for sure. Because you, now you got you to answer to somebody. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, so thinking about all of the hats you've worn, you know, over the years, I kind of want to talk a little bit about your corporate experience and what it is like being a black woman navigating, you know, like corporate litigation, but also in, in thinking about the, the business space and, you know, venture capital and things like that, navigating corporate America sure. as a black woman. Well, there's a lot to to unpack there, um, (laughs) a whole lot. And, you know, I started my career um, very early. I did six different internships, corporate internships when I was in college. So the first one, I hadn't even started school yet. I was just right out of high school um, and then started doing these internships from, from there. And I learned very early in the process that tokenism is real. Um, And when you get into these spaces and they see that a you're black b you're a woman uh c you are intelligent and d you're affable they're like oh we have checked all the boxes um that that is all we need to do um but there are implicit biases in those environments um and then if you are someone who's concerned about diversity beyond just you having a seat at the table then there are internal conversations that you're having about well when do i speak up Um, and and when do I say this is not okay and it's not enough that I'm just here, why aren't there more people here who look like me? Um, so, you know, early in my career, of course, as an intern, I didn't feel like I had, uh, the authority to, to bring those things up. So I'm just, you know, trying to be the best employee that I can be. But my first experience with speaking truth to power was actually, um, at, in my summer associateship between, my second and third year of law school. Um, And that's when I realized that A, I was in a racially hostile environment, B, it wasn't a place for me, and C, I was about to give up a a very high paying opportunity for my own personal belief system and for my own uh, well-being. And that changed 
the trajectory of my career uh, making that decision. Is this a decision that I regret? Absolutely not. But it was at that point that I decided, okay, I have to figure out how to navigate this world um, and do so in a way where my integrity is intact. But I feel like I'm standing up not only for myself, but other people of color as well in those environments. And, and listen, it's still a balancing act. It's a dance. I'm not saying I have it all figured out. Every day I'm asking questions to myself about when do you speak up? When do you just let that slide? Um, and you have to make certain concessions to be able to survive in this environment. But for me, there are there are ways in which you can approach the situation, let them know, you know, I'm, I'm not your token. I'm, I'm not, you know, the reason that you, you should feel good about yourself in terms of diversity, because there is still work to be done for sure. Um, um, that I had in that summer associateship and what it did to me um, and, and really changed my view of this work and helped me understand how difficult my career could be as a black lawyer, for sure. Yeah. So let's take a step back really quickly. You know, I know some of our listeners, you know, most people I'm, I'm sure are familiar with what or who lawyers are and kind of work they do. But, you know, like you said, you've worked in corporate law and, and things in the entertainment industry and stuff like that. Can you, so can you just speak to a little bit about, you know, what kind of things does the lawyer that does your kind of work? What would you what kind of work would you be sure. doing? Um, what does so, it look like? Kind of cases or things along yeah, those so lines? So inform our I'll listeners. take it back. Right. So I went to law school with every intention of being a corporate lawyer. When I say corporate lawyer, I mean the people that negotiate contracts, close deals, work on mergers and acquisitions, you know, the big money deals. I never had Mm -hmm. um, the desire to be a litigator. That's not what I wanted to do. So when you think litigation, that's the disputes, you know, um, going to court, which is so funny because litigation so few cases actually make it to trial <laughs> that even though we talk about it, you see it on TV, arguing in front of a jury or a judge, yeah. so many get settled outside of that. But that was not my bag. That's not what I wanted. I wanted to um, be a contract negotiator, a transactional lawyer. And because of that choice that I made as a summer associate um, and gave up that opportunity I actually landed in litigation because that's what I could find at the time. And there are all these things in the legal world um, when you're in school about how you get hired and when you get hired and all this stuff. That If you jump on that train, it's very hard to course correct. Um, so there are implications there, which we can talk about. But in any event, so litigation essentially is like you are obviously working with clients to resolve a dispute, either by settling or by court. So um, I, I did that work. Uh, corporate litigation, class action lawsuits um, against uh, on behalf of providers uh, and healthcare litigation. So basically suing the major insurance companies for how they reimburse their doctors and trying to cut corners and find ways to reimburse, uh, to reduce their reimbursements, as well as securities litigation. So um, that is cases on behalf of shareholders when companies try to merge or, or acquire and, and buy back those stocks, et cetera. Um, but I, I transitioned from there and I decided, okay, um, I, I want to be in on the New York scene and helping startup founders really get their businesses off the ground and, and get it to scale. And when we say scale, we mean a massive organization, mm-hmm. you know, that's a household name and is making millions, if not billions of dollars, et cetera. So, um, I, you know, what they call in the legal industry, I hung out my shingle. I started this process and I had, you know, clients that were coming to me saying, Hey, I have this app 
that I just launched or I want to launch, um, you know, hey, I have this technology I'm, I'm working on or this entertainment conglomerate or this media company. And I would basically function as outside counsel for them. So um, mm-hmm. any issues around I want to hire interns, but I don't want to pay them. Are there employment law issues with that and maybe very discreet uh, problems that I would be solving or um, more importantly, just negotiating contracts on their behalf. So uh, if they're getting investment, I would deal with those series A, series B funding rounds. If they're working on a joint venture with another organization, I would deal with that. If they're granting uh, equity or stock options to employees, I would be addressing that as well. And the list just goes on and on. It becomes, you know, sort of a kitchen sink thing because they're going to come to you for everything. So how that shifts when you go from um, a small practice with startups into a more corporate and transactional environment, of course, the resources are, are vast. Um, when you're in that corporate structure, which I made the choice uh, to, to make that move, then at that point, you're highly specialized. So at this juncture of my career, I negotiate contracts uh, on behalf of a global investment bank um, within the professional services and cyber transaction space. So taking all those skills that I learned as a as a solo um, and now applying them basically for the man. Can I say that on this show? <laughs> um, uh, so now I'm on the other side of the fence, which I have some thoughts about that as well um, in terms of my long-term passions. But so now I, ne- I negotiate, uh, you know, just corporate agreements from the large, the large company, company side. Does that answer your question? <clears throat> no, yeah, for sure. It does. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing I was wondering, cause I do want to talk uh, about some of your startup, uh, work. But before I do that, I just want to know, um, because I I can only imagine, you know, your position as a black woman in these corporate spaces, I can only assume that you were probably one of a few. Um, And I'm just really interested in understanding, like, how do you how has your like identity as a black woman like shaped, you know, your relationships with clients and and even other uh, like, you know, litigators or uh, colleagues in in your profession? You know, that that's an interesting question. Let's start with clients. Right. So when I moved into the solo space, I literally took my savings as a young lawyer and said, I'm about to do this. Like I'm about to set up this infrastructure to advise uh, startups. I'm going to help them make it to the promised land. And specifically, I want to help startup founders of color do that. I'm going to give them, you know, the resources and the tools from the legal perspective to make that happen. I expected the perception from my white counterparts in the startup lawyer space to look at me as if I was ill-equipped and incompetent. What I didn't expect is to there to be a, a subconscious bias from people who look exactly like me. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I think sometimes we don't realize that you can be black and have internalized white supremacy as well. Like that, that is a thing based on your experiences, what you, you've viewed, what you see in the media and what you see in industry. Mm-hmm. So I learned very quickly in that process that I would be doing consults with uh, you know, prospective clients of color. And first and foremost, they wouldn't want to pay for the console. 
So most people know if you ever call up a lawyer, it's very few, unless you're talking about, you know, accident, like personal injury, stuff like that, medical malpractice. On the, on the corporate contract side of things, there are very few who are going to sit down and talk to you for free. And so, you know, I, w- I got into this and clients would say, you know, prospective clients would call me and say, I'd really love to come in and talk to you pick your brain about what I'm trying to do and figure out what direction I need to go in. And then you say, okay, we can have that conversation. And my consultation fee is this. Then it's like, whoa, whoa, I, I got to pay for that. Yeah, absolutely. You have to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just hoping to test out to see if you knew what you were doing first. Okay. Yeah. So when I first started <laughs> oh, hearing wow. that, I sort of just put it in the bucket of, well, I'm young. You know, at that point I was 30. I just turned 30 when I started my practice. And, um, So I'm like, oh, they're just saying that because I'm a young lawyer. And then as time went on, I realized that, you know, people were saying things to me like, well, you know, we all know the Jewish lawyers are the best, but I came to you in hopes that you'd be cheaper. So, you know, looking for the the homegirl connection. And to hear that from your own people, you know, for them to say, I don't think you're the best, but I think you're the lawyer that I can afford it was astounding to me. And, you know, someone who spent a lot of money to get the credentials that I have, right? There are good lawyers and there are, are good people across professions from all kinds of schools. But, you know, I made the choice. I was like, listen, I know I'm going into a competitive environment. If I can get into these schools, let me go. So we're talking about an Ivy League undergrad. I had worked for Johnson & Johnson, you know, this huge Fortune 500 company. Then went to a top 20 law school, which I think they fell out of the top 20 at this point. But at the time, um, they were top 20. So, you know, I, I have the goods, right? And none of that mattered. So if, if they've adopted that philosophy, imagine me sitting across the table from an actual Jewish attorney. And trying to work with them or a Jewish accountant and saying, listen, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to create referral sources. Um, you know, I'm hoping that we can cross refer. And then what I'm finding is that I'm referring accounting clients to them, but I'm not getting any referrals in return. So, you know, for me, it was a, a valuable lesson in that even though people are you have a seat at the table and people are are welcoming you on the surface, there are thoughts that they might even not even recognize um, that really are dictating how they view you as a practitioner and how they view you as a person. So um, that was a lot for me to overcome and to prove my worth in the industry. And then when you add the fact that I am a woman on top of it, just that aspect and that intersectionality of being propositioned by colleagues, by prospective clients. Um, I've had some wild experiences <laughs> In in that uh, in that regard as well. So you know, battling that to not be sexualized and respected for you know my acumen and leaving all that other stuff off the table um, was a challenge as well, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, you know, hearing stuff like that, it's just like it's really disheartening in a lot of ways. You know, it's just sometimes you know a lot of the conversation and rhetoric is within our community is always about. A lot of the times, understandably so, about what mm-hmm. the white folks do to us. Um, but I think it's equally important, sometimes if not more, to realize the things we do to ourselves and the impressions we have on each other and how that really inhibits progress in a Absolutely. lot of ways, you know? Um, and the fact, the fact, like you said, you've put in the work. And, and, and what I really don't understand about it, and, you know, talk, my uncle, he always has his perspective and it's always something that stuck with me is that as black folk, especially 
y'all as black women, right, to get the credentials you have received or earned, right? Oftentimes, more than not, you have to be three, four times, five times better than your counterparts. So therefore, when I see a black woman or a black person with these kind of credentials, my assumption is like, whoa, they're probably way better than the competition or the white counterparts because of the work and they don't have as much privilege as other folks. And that's how we should be thinking, because that's probably more likely the case than the opposite. But yet, like you said, this kind of internalized white supremacy and how we turn on each other. And then we we project that in our own communities Absolutely. and it damages and, ourselves. You know, I'll, I'll even put myself on on blast here. And as I was thinking about this interview and preparing it, actually, this this moment in my life came back to me. So um, I left. So I had a, applied to law school. I knew that you know I was I was going to go. Um, and in that process, I was working for Johnson and Johnson by some, uh, fluke, you can call it divine intervention, um, what have you. I got linked with the chairman of one of the premier law firms in the country. And he said, why don't you come work for me for six months before you go to law school? Because once you get into the law firm environment, these big corporate white shoe firms that make, you know, millions and millions of dollars, it's a conveyor belt and it's hard to get off. You know, you get locked into the, the golden handcuffs, the grueling hours, et cetera. So I said, all right, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that. So I came, I left my corporate well-paying job. I was making great money for my age at the time. I think I was 24. Um, and I went and worked as a, a paralegal for him for six months. My first week there, I was <clears throat> in a file room and a black woman, came and introduced herself to me, said, you know, oh, great to meet you. You know, uh, give me any, send me an email. We'll go to lunch. I'll give you the lay of the land here. Um, we can talk about everything because she knew I was going to law school and all that great stuff. So I remember going back to my desk. She gave me her name. Now, the internal system that they had there, you could look people up on two directories, the attorney directory and the admin directory. So the, the, the secretary directory. Without thinking, I looked that woman up on the secretary directory first. Secretary and paralegal. She was a full-blown senior attorney there. And I couldn't believe after having spent, you know, my little short life, 24 years in so many environments where, you know, I was the only in uh, prestigious academic institutions. I went to, um, for a period of time, a very prestigious prep school in junior high where, you know, there wasn't nobody that looked like me. Um, all these programs where it's just me at a, a college where there wasn't that many of us. And then I sat in that environment and made an, a, a snap judgment that that woman was a paralegal or a secretary. So in that moment, I'm like, what does that say about me? And what do I have to unlearn, um, you know, to not have that experience again? And it, it's what you alluded to. Uh, these images are perpetuated and we're so used to being, we're so used to being the only that when another one shows up, sometimes we implicitly believe that they're not on the same level as us because we're used to standing on that island alone and being in a vacuum. Um, so I think the more we have these types of conversations, the more we increase the visibility of you know black folks who are making strides in their chosen fields, the more we educate our people on some issues that we have to deal with internally um, you know, in conjunction or in tandem to sort of pointing the finger outside as well, because those issues are alive and well also um, at a structural level, all the way down to, you know, the racist microaggression level. But we also have to deal with how we perceive ourselves and each other. Mm. 
I really appreciate you being transparent about, you know, you even, you know, making that misstep. I know I've done the same thing with assuming like, you know, a professor was a graduate student or, or something like that. And I'm like, would I have done the same thing had that professor been a white male and not a woman of color? You know, I can think of a very specific incident. And, you know, she took it in stride, but I'm like, mm, that probably right. happens a lot. And it's a, a pattern that probably makes her feel some type absolutely, of way. Absolutely. And I'm so happy I didn't make that mistake in her face, but I still felt terrible about it. And you know, she turned out to be a great mentor and support system to me um, while I was there. But, you know, it, it's something that I, I really worked to consciously unlearn. Um, and, you know, in my current profession, I get it now. Like, you know, people come on the floor and, you know, they assume, you know, that you, you're the receptionist or, and see you in the pantry and do you know how do I get to this conference room? It's like, I, you know, this, that's not what I do. Um, and you know, when I, when I started the, the corporate side of, of, uh, my career outside of, you know, just solo work, then it became, you know, talking to other attorneys within the corporate space, questioning whether I know what I'm talking about. Are you, are you sure that's correct? You know, escalating, trying to go <clears throat> above my head and just assuming you know, making an assumption that we're sitting in the same position, you know, we're both legal, assuming that I'm speaking out of turn, or I just don't know what's going on. Where does that come from? It's not a coincidence that it happens all the time. There's no way. Mm-hmm. That's wild. You know, yep. Intersectionality, mm-hmm. you know, this, this whole thing, it's a monster, mm-hmm. especially dealing with, I mean, it's everywhere, but there's some spaces I believe it's, it's definitely more prevalent and, and running rampant than others. And I think that corporate space is a whole different kind of monster than a lot of other uh, professions for sure. Um, one thing is, uh, you know, you counsel startups and innovative businesses. And so particularly, you know, we probably have some listeners and we've had some content before when we talked about, um, you know, creating own incomes and passive income and really being entrepreneurs or whatever it is, trying to step on your own feet and not being reliant on one paycheck. And so and I think a lot of the conversation in the public is beginning to go that way, too. I see a lot of a lot more conversations on social media and stuff along those lines. Um, so, you know, to our listeners who may be thinking about maybe starting a startup or or some kind of creative, innovative business idea, you know, what would you say are some of the obstacles, unique obstacles that entrepreneurs that are trying to do this usually face and maybe even particular um, entrepreneurs or aspiring sure. entrepreneurs of um, color? So the good news is I want to like break this down sort of into two tracks. The good news is that for, you know, African-American okay. small business ownership has increased by 400 percent in, in a year's time. Um, so, you know, at this at this juncture, 45 percent of small business owners are minorities and African-Americans make up the largest segment uh, within that group of minorities. So that mm-hmm. people will hear that. What's the what's the cause? For you that? know, why, I why think is that? there are more resources out there, like number one. So people with the just the Internet and visibility and exposure to opportunities um, that's mm-hmm. it. That's increasing. I think it's exactly what you mentioned. People feel the crunch to create multiple streams of income um, because, you know, we're now in a time and space where it's not, we're not our parents' generation. You know, back then you could uh, graduate from high school, get a good job, work that job until retirement, have a pension and just be okay. Mm -hmm. Like buy a house, raise a family, the whole nine. That is not the case anymore. (laughs) You know, there, there are a lot less people who stay at the same job their entire career 
Number one, a lot of us are under crushing student loan debt. You know, number two, the cost of living is incredibly high and our economy is just unstable. So you add all, all those things together. I think there was a time when it was a very specific kind of person who was like, oh, I have to start a business. And now people see it as almost a necessity. Like, even if that's not my full time thing, it's going to be a side thing because I need to, to supplement my income. So um, that is great news that we're taking the plunge on the, the small business scale. But um, two points I want to raise about that. One, small businesses and startups are not the same thing. And I can explain, you know, what the difference is. And also, uh, whether it's a small business or, or a startup, the, one of the issues that runs rampant through both is access to capital, trying to get the funding to do what you need to do and to, to grow your business. Um, that, that is very mm -hmm. difficult. So businesses are being started, but the question becomes, are they sustainable? Um, and that's the problem that we have as a community, just having the runway um, to really sustain the business. So when you're looking at a small business, we're talking about um, you know, businesses where you wanna get it up, get it running and start make, making money, if not on the first day, as soon as possible into that process. You may not build uh, a multi-million dollar enterprise, but it's enough to sustain you. You might have a few employees um, as well. And you know, you're making it work. You might be able to support your family off that or build a nice little nest egg, maybe leave something to your children. And all of that is great. That's one side of the, the fence. Um, and we are starting those types of businesses every day. But there's this whole other industry as it relates to startups where we are underrepresented. And while access to capital to really get something going is difficult across both spaces, it is especially difficult for us in the startup space. So when I say startup, I mean companies that are meant, they're not going to make money the first day. They require an incredible amount of investment to get off the ground. And they are meant to go large. They're meant to scale um, and really, you know, proliferate uh, across, uh, especially online. So across technology, online platforms, et cetera. So when we start talking startups, you know, startups that have blown up that we all know, Facebook, Uber, Lyft, PayPal, you know, those types of companies that are huge multi-billion dollar uh, industries. So, you know, that, that whole economy is uh, a world unto itself. And, you know, I don't know if it, the circles that you guys run in, but I'm sure you've talked to someone who said, oh, I have this idea for an app or, you know, I want to start this, this kind of website or, or this technology, et cetera. And the, the deeper we get into the STEM mm -hmm. fields, that's going to continue to happen. But the problem that we have here is the industry standard data point is that only 1% of startup financing goes to African-American and Latino found founders combined. And that's the number year over year. Like it doesn't change. 1% of that money is going to us. And then when you start breaking it down by gender as well, black women are among the least likely to receive venture capital funding. Um, so when you're talking about mm. the statistics, right? Like 90% of startups fail. So these are startups that are well-funded. They have the money, they have the venture capitalists backing them, millions of dollars. They still fail. If we can't even get the money to get started, what is the probability of us succeeding? And it's not that it doesn't happen, because it does. We're scrappy. We're people who utilize ingenuity and pure grit to get things done. But And I'm not going to take that away from us. But if we don't have the money 
to really get an idea off the ground and sustain us until it can be scaled and be acquired or, you know, go into an initial public offering and go, you know, go public. How, how can those numbers change? They can't, you know, they, they, they will remain where they are. And I mean, as I start to, you know, break down those statistics, what's funny to me is as I, I have learned both anecdotally what I saw in my practice and what I see just in the pure stats, um, a lot of the problems that I was seeing at the, the lawyer level are the same thing that startups found, startup founders see. Having to comp- convince people that you're competent and being held to a higher standard and convincing them that you're worth the money that you're asking for. And oftentimes than not, people just, investors with a deep pocket, they just don't buy it. Even if you get a seat at the table, because that's the first step, getting the, uh, the ability to pitch. Um, and I, I've seen unique statistics around that as well, which we can get into. But like, so it's getting through the door and actually getting the meeting and then someone believing in you enough to actually give you the funds. And those are huge obstacles for African-Americans. Very, very hard to overcome. Yeah, I mean, 1%. Yeah, and I mean, I we, mean, can, we can drill it down if, um, if you want. So as of uh, 34 black women founders who had raised more than a million dollars in venture funding. And just to put that in perspective, a million dollars is usually like the minimum you go in for. When we're talking about these big startups, like a million is is generally like the number, right, that you start. So the fact that, um, you know, they, they, they can't get that amount is, is astounding. Right. And then if you look even further over this venture funding space, which, um, has increased, uh, you know, year over year over the last 10 years. So, you know, if I told you, okay, black, you know, black women led startups have raised a total of $289 million since 2009, that number by itself sounds significant, right? Like, wow, almost $300 million that we've raised. But guess what the total amount of venture funding that has moved through this ecosystem in the last 10 years has been? $424.7 billion with a B. So black women-led startups have raised 0.0006% of venture funding that is out there since 2009. Now, you can't tell me. You You already mentioned it earlier that you know, the, the work that, that we put in, in terms of education, uh, we've got to work incredibly hard, right, to, to succeed and, and receive cer- certain opportunities. So you can't tell me that they've only received that small, le- way less, almost 0% um, of funding because they're ill-equipped, or they don't have good ideas. That is laughable, right? There's no way yeah. that that is the reason. Um, and there are studies that are coming out as well that, that prove this implicit bias that, that we've been alluding to and why that number is so low. Um, but when you think about that, those statistics, and I think about my experiences of stand, you know, sitting across my desk in my office as a solo attorney and watching, you know, black entrepreneurs literally break down in tears because they have invested everything they had in a dream and just not having the resources to sustain it. And now they're in the red, you know, they put their life savings into it. Um, and knowing that they're smart enough and knowing that they have a good idea, but just not being able to get in the right doors, um, and get the, the cosign that they need, uh, from a financial perspective to, to get themselves 
uh, to a point of growth and sustainability. It, it was for me, it started to take its toll on who I on who I was as a person and emotionally and psychologically to witness that um, on a consistent basis and seeing the, the very different experience with a lot of my white clients who would, would have a half baked idea and, you know, call just their personal networks and raise eight hundred thousand dollars overnight for something that wasn't even fleshed out yet. Um, it's a dare it's a very difficult thing to witness for sure. No, that, that really is. I mean, just <clears throat> hearing those numbers, I mean, like you said, I mean, I know you said you had clients breaking down because they live in that reality and you know, that's not a, a world that I'm in, but just hearing those right. numbers makes me want to break down. You know, it's like, damn, what is going on here? That's, that's insane for a lot of reasons. Um, but I guess, you know, I guess my follow-up question to what you've been saying, uh, one of my follow-up questions is, you know, we hear all this and, and clearly the odds are stacked against black folk that want to get into this kind of dealings, right? Um, in a lot of ways. So what advice or what kind of things, like if I wanted to have a great idea and I'm thinking about a startup and things like that, and I, and now I hear all these kind of statistics of like, whoa, you know, the chances of me succeeding or getting this kind of funds is very rare. Are there certain things I should, or a checklist or a certain kind of certain amount of steps I should be paying attention to in order to give me, give me the best chance of success? I don't think the, the great thing that's happening is there are more um, accelerators and incubators that are specifically targeting uh, startup founders and entrepreneurs of color and, and women as well to help them get the resources that they need. So that that's a slow trickle at this point. Um, but so I, I don't think that the change is going to happen overnight where we're going to have parity uh, with our, our white co- uh, counterparts in terms of opportunity and access to capital and being able to grow. However, there are things that we can do um, to to help this process along. I think, you know, there are a lot of events that are popping up for um, that. Some have been around for a while, like the Black uh, Enterprise Entrepreneur Summit that's been around for years. But there um, are, are new ones that are, are coming up as well. So being around people who have already created the infrastructure for you to get vis- increased visibility is important. Um, and those one of the, the greatest resources that I have witnessed in my career in terms of creating opportunities is having the right network. Um, and often that network is immediate and automatic for um, white folks who are, who are trying to do something just by virtue of their family networks um, or you know the networks that they have from school and alumni and all that great stuff. Like they have the Rolodex. And I'm sure you know somebody may hear this and say, well, you know, I'm white and I didn't have those, those opportunities. But that is, that is statistically true, right? They, it, oftentimes they just have access to um, more resources just from a network perspective than, than we do. So we may have to work a lot more, you know, a lot harder to create that, but it can be created. So I would say if you have an interest in a business and uh, starting it and growing that business, you need to surround yourself with people who are, are in the field that you want to be in or who can help to educate you by way of conferences. There's all types of uh, meetups and, you know, discussion boards and all those things. So it serves two purposes. You start to build that, that Rolodex that you don't necessarily have uh, automatically because of your family connections or school connections or what have you. But also there's a knowledge shared there. So there's no need to reinvent the wheel. And I think as a culture, we tend to hold things close to the vest because so many of us buy into this whole crabs in the barrel mentality. The reality of it is, though, there's a whole world out there 
of Black people who are doing amazing things and uplifting each other and trying to move the cause forward for us as a people. You know, the Black and Highly Dangerous podcast is one example of that. There are a number of resources out there to educate yourself on whatever it is you're interested in or, or get resources or what have you. So I would say um, definitely try to enmesh in whatever that chosen industry is that you're in, get to the conferences, do what you need to do. And if people hear this and they're like, but all that stuff costs money. Let me just tell you right now, if you want to build anything, you are going to have to sacrifice. And it may mean picking up a side, you know, a side mm-hmm. job to pay for it. It may mean that you can't, go out in the way that you would like, or, you know, you have to make the sacrifices. And if it's important to you, you will find a way. And I know that. And one of the things that I know to be true as well is that opportunity meets you where you are. So if you are uh, rising to the occasion and that you are, are putting the resources in that you have, those resources are automatically going to grow. I firmly believe that you become what you behold. So if you are consistently seeing yourself as an entrepreneur and saying, I want to grow this and I'm going to put my energy into this, that is going to expand. And before you know it, your environment, the people around you, the resources um, will start to appear. So I think that's important. Also, know what it is, like know the ins and outs of your business, even if you are in the early stages. um, There are tons of resources in every city for uh, founders to get help with business plan prep, understanding f- the financials, how to market, et cetera, because we've established, right, that we're held to uh, a, a different standard. And there are studies that prove this, that not only do investors see fewer pitches from women and minority entrepreneurs, that when they do, they hold us to a higher standard. Um, they expect more from us in the pitch mm-hmm. because funders are twice as likely to think that women and minority-owned businesses will perform below market average compared to those run by white men. Now, the success stories and when you get into a performance, the statistics don't even support that. It's and The fact actually is that we're in line with our peers and women do perform better, statistically speaking. However, we know that bias is there. Mm. So, you know, we say it all the time. We got to work, you know, twice as hard to get half as much. It's an unfortunate truth, but you need to be educated on what it is that you are trying to do. Learn the ins and outs. You know, so when someone asks you, what's your target demographic? You know the answer to that question. When someone asks you, what's, what's the budget that you need to get this off the ground and sustain yourself for the first year? You, you know the answer. And it's hard to sit down and rack your brain and figure that out or the operations for what you're doing. But the worst thing that can happen is that you finally kick the door in and you get an opportunity and you're unprepared to really deliver because we don't get second chances. We don't get the opportunity to be half-baked uh, in, in, you know, in our business. So I would say you know, educate, 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 and look up the free resources. It is easier. I will readily admit if you are in a larger market, like in California or New York or Atlanta, there's more, more there. But there are many secondary cities um, that are becoming hubs for business, like Detroit, uh, Charlotte, et cetera, look up um, the free resources that are available to you. For, for example, New Yorkers, New York City Small Business Services has a wealth of resources. I was a volunteer attorney for them where I'd give free advice to, to entrepreneurs who couldn't afford uh, my services. There are tons of things out there. Um, so I would, you know, I would say educate and don't be afraid to make the ask. I mean, it, it, if you get the opportunity to pitch an investor, do it. Get yourself prepared and do it. The answer might not be yes um, immediately, but someday 
it just might. Um, so it, it's about walking in confidence, but having that confidence backed by the knowledge uh, to know, so people know that you're you're the real deal for sure. No, I appreciate that. I think that's great advice. I think our um, our listeners who who are interested in can get a lot and take away to take away a lot from that. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes people just don't know, and they want to hear the core, I guess, values of what you need to be. In. I, I agree. Education is. Um, doing the groundwork, like really being fully informed as far as what you're trying to do. You know, if other people are doing similar things, like you said, getting close to them, we're seeing what they're doing or listening to them. And I mean, you'd be surprised, like you mentioned the podcast. I mean, there are a lot of podcasts for what people, exactly. whatever your general interest in or specific interests there are in, you know, you could just literally listen to probably some of the top people in your field, sit down every week and drop free dimes, right? Um, as far as how they got to where they are and what they're doing. Absolutely. And things along those lines. Absolutely. So it's out I there, mean, you're right. The, the amount of podcasts on finance and starting a business and growing a business and, you know, taking some of the largest, you know, the founders of the largest companies I'm on the planet right now who, who had rapid fire growth and really breaking down um, how they got there, you know, from the, the start, there are tons of them out there and there are many that have cropped up that are speaking to black entrepreneurs and people who have an interest in um, financial success as well and, and are speaking uniquely to our experience and our culture. So um, I'm always telling people, like, get on those podcasts because it literally it, it can be an MBA for you that you didn't have to pay for. Mm, yeah. Mm. And like this, this is one of the first lessons. She's dropping that <laughs> knowledge, y'all. Y'all better do <laughs> Um, so I was going to say, speaking of advice, because, you know, again, you, you know, have, you know, helped build up, you know, startups and, and counsel them and in innovative businesses. But even like taking it back mm-hmm. to the foundations, I'm sure, pretty sure some of our listeners are potentially sure. interested in law. Um, and I know when I was an undergrad and I was thinking about it, there were actually a lot of people who tried to discourage me from going into law. You know, it's so hard. It's so this it's so that. So, you know, what advice or insights would you give to listeners who might be interested in pursuing a career Ooh, in law? You know, people ask me all the time. They're like, oh, what do you think? I want to go to law school. And then the joking, the answer that lawyers make jokingly is like, don't. <laughs> There's so many other things that you can do. Um, and make just as much, if not more money with a lot of the headache. But the, the truth of the matter is I really, really love being a lawyer. Um, do, will I necessarily retire from this? Like do this on 55 or 60? Maybe not. Um, I have other, you know, goals and aspirations, but I grew up in, um, the Cosby show era. So I grew up, grew up in that Claire Huxtable, uh, vortex. Like I want to do that, you know, mm-hmm. which speaks to the, you know, just the power of uh, image as well and, and seeing positive images of what's possible. Um, so I, I was like, I knew very early that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I knew that it was going to be competitive and it was going to be hard. So, you know, for me, I've always been what I would consider a high achiever and trying to get the best grades possible, trying to, you know, make myself appear as, uh, well-rounded as possible, you know, et, et cetera. So, you know, I would say to people who have an interest, of course, try to build the best resume that you can. Um, and that goes beyond, just I have a great I'm, I'm, I'm working towards a great undergrad transcript or um, my LSAT scores are decent. It's becoming more and more competitive to get into law school. So just as it is an undergrad. So it's making yourself look like um, somebody who 
uh, can bring something unique to that class demographic. So um, I, I would say work on the, the fundamentals, of course, of trying to get the best grades that you can. Do not go into the LSAT blind. So the LSAT is the standardized test score that you need to apply uh, you know, to, to law school. Do the work to prep. If you can't afford to take a class, buy the books, find them on eBay, whatever, um, and get the best possible LSAT score that you can because uh, schools, it's not everything, but they weigh uh, their, their admissions process um, and selection very heavily on that one piece. You know, they're, they're convinced that the LSAT score is an indication of how well you'll do uh, academically and how great of a lawyer you will be. Those tests, as we know, are biased <laughs> to us as well. Um, so I, I don't personally <laughs> believe that, that, you know, you need some really high LSAT score to succeed as a lawyer. It's an indication of anything. However, if you want to get into, um, a, a, a good school, they, they are going to look at that. And I, and I want to pause there because, um, people, you know, there are some, pre, some people in our profession who believe if you can't get into a top law school, then you shouldn't be going, uh, you know, what's the point of going to, mm. you know, a school that is, doesn't have the credentials, um, of being, of placing, uh, really great, really strong candidates in, uh, in the courts or as a law clerk or in the big white shoe law firms or in corporate America, et cetera. Um, I don't necessarily believe that because I know amazing lawyers from all types of schools. What I will say is this, Joe, um, think about what your goals are. So if you're someone who knows that you want to be a corporate lawyer um, and work at a, a, a firm that's going to pay you $180,000 your first year out, which a lot of people, you know, they're going for the money, then you do need to think about that um, because it's not impossible. But when you're talking again, to take it back about us as African-Americans is going to be almost impossible if you don't have the schooling, the, you know, the schools that they look for and they recruit at for you to get into those environments and slide in. So if your goal um, is to be in, you know, one of these competitive law firms or to, you know, clerk for a court justice or something like that, you do want to do the work to, try to get into the best school possible. Now, the caveat is that is I'm a woman of faith. So when there's favor on your life, there's favor. I, I, I firmly believe that. So even though I'm saying all this, there are instances where I believe God will intervene on your behalf and doors will open, even if you don't necessarily, uh, you know, it's not reflected on paper that you deserve a seat at that table. But um, to put the best foot forward, I would say work towards trying to uh, get into the best school possible. Absolutely. Um, and also lastly, I would, I would just say, um, make sure you're not doing it just for the money because I know a lot of people who make a lot of money who are miserable. And when I say miserable, it goes beyond the standard. Um, I hate my job. It's, it's not just that, you know, the dirty little secret within the law the legal industry is that the high instances of depression, there are cases of suicide, um, drug abuse, you know, all those things that happen. And we're seeing more articles come out in the media about these stories of lawyers who basically flame out. Um, so you have to be sure that you're going into it for the right reasons. And you may get into law school and you may get that internship and decide, you know, when I thought I wanted to work into the courts, um, you go into the courts and work there, but that's not for me. Figure that out because there are many things that you can do with a law degree um, and being a licensed attorney 
that are not necessarily just practicing law in the traditional sense. So I'm trying to, you know, reach out to people. That's another thing I think we just need to do better uh, as a people with, and that is cold reaching people who, um, you know, are, are farther in their career than you. If you're thinking about going to law school, talk to lawyers, ask them, can you shadow them for a day, see what they do, uh, the ups and downs of their uh, particular career um, and make a choice from there. And I, I will leave, I will leave this topic on this point. Think about the money um, because law school gets more and more expensive every year, just like every other uh, <laughs> academic program out there. And it's mm-hmm. easy to say, I'm going to borrow 200 K and figure it out later. If you know you have no in- interest in going into an area of law, that's going to pay off that 200 K think long, long and hard before you borrow without a plan. Um, because there's a, there's a saying that I, one of my mentors told me when I went to law school and is it, it basically says, if you live like a lawyer in law school, you're going to live like a law student while you're a lawyer. Um, and what that basically means is, you know, borrow money <laughs> that you don't know how you're going to pay back. Uh, and then that, you know, Navient, Sally Mae is going to come knocking and you're not in an appropriate position to really pay that money back. So, and I mean, most of us borrowed that money. I, I went to law school before the crash of 08. So we thought the world was our oyster and the money was always going to be there. Uh, my, how wrong we were <laughs> when that recession happened. Um, <laughs> yes, I would say, think about the implications. And if, if it means sometimes going to a lesser known school or a lower tiered school, but they're giving you a full ride. If that, if that jives with what, you, with what your aspirations oh. are and, and from a career perspective, then go for it. Yeah, speaking of student loans, I was actually hoping that a disgruntled employee um, from the shutdown would just kind of I mean, like, just press the button, <laughs> right? Clear. Press just the like, button, clear it all out, give us a fresh start. Like, I, I'd really be okay with that. I mean, I might go back to being a litigator and a criminal lawyer if it came down to it, just to defend that person. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm still hoping that happens. So like, somebody just takes one for the team and presses the button. <laughs> Take it for the team. <laughs> Oh, that's too funny. But no, that's not as really good advice. You know, um, a lot of times I have students come in my office and we have tons of conversations about future and what they like to do in their career. And oftentimes one of the first things that come in my mouth is how much money they're trying to make. And I was like, right. nope, no, let's not do that. Right. Um, I think more importantly is let's take a step back and and sometimes because they, they don't know what kind of jobs are available. I was like, even if you don't know that there's not a name for your job, just what would you love waking up every morning and doing? Let's just start there. I think that's most important because um, like, you're right. A lot of people get stuck on a check and then they get the check and then now their life is miserable because they're not doing anything they thoroughly enjoy. And especially we all know any kind of working, it's about the process, right? And and enjoying the process first. And if you can't do that, then everything else is just going to be out of order. So I, I appreciate, appreciate that you mentioned that. Um, so, you know, a lot of great advice, great discussion, you know, is there anything that we didn't cover that you had in mind that you wanted to talk about that we didn't, didn't get a chance to ask you that you'd like to, no, I to mean, address? I think- you guys are doing amazing work um, and sort of educating the people uh, and bringing experts in their in their chosen profession um, to an, an academia to come in and share knowledge. This is something that is crucially needed, um, and I'm happy to see that that we're making strides. And I'm happy and, and hope that I was able to add something of substance and add value to your show. 
Oh, no, you did for sure. Um, you want to tell our listeners about December 26th or podcast, you know, that, you know, you've added this on your plate. You're already doing a lot of other things are really busy, but there's something that you you feel strongly about. And I think it's an awesome thing you've been doing with it. Like you said, I've been on it, but I'm very fully supportive of what you do. Tell our listeners about, you know, kind of the premise of what the December Absolutely. 26th Absolutely. So people, is. you know, they hear that name and they think, um, oh, uh, it's December 26th, your birthday. No, it's not. Um, so... DeMarcus, my brother, who serves as the producer of the show, you know, we grew up in a single parent home. We didn't have a lot, but Christmas was always my favorite holiday. And it, so it had nothing to do with the gifts, but it was more so just about uh, the festivities and being with my grandparents and my cousins. And then on December 26th, it would be over. And I'd have this post-holiday blues and I wouldn't get excited again until my birthday uh, rolled around about a month and a half later. So as an adult, I started using this term December 26th syndrome to describe those mundane periods in life where we don't quite know what's next. Um, And as high achievers, we tend to have a laser-like focus when we have a specific goal in mind. So we're trying to obtain a degree, launch a business, uh, plan an event, get an initiative off the ground, write a book, et cetera. But when that chapter changes and opportunities are not presenting themselves as quickly as they were before, or we're just stagnant, or worse still, we've come through some form of failure or disappointment, we can often lose that diligence and discipline or even, you know, fall into a state of despair. So this concept of December 26er refers to people who may struggle with that, but they know there is a better way. And they desire to maximize potential and take consistent action each and every day to manifest the vision that they have for their lives. Um, And I'm very passionate about featuring people's stories who we feel embody that spirit, uh, particularly people of color, and serving our audience and educating and inspiring in that way so people can get up and live life to the fullest, just like I get to do every day. Immediately. (laughs) Yes. Yes. All our listeners who, if you heard that and you haven't yet, go ahead and subscribe. Um, I promise you, you will. And I just want to say um, episode 51 interview with Dr. Terrell Connor is up there. So go check out our our conversation where, (laughs) um, you know, Terrell, you were dropping all kinds of knowledge uh, in your areas of expertise. So I would encourage your listeners to go check that out if they haven't already for sure. So, so how can people uh, reach you, um, you know, find you on social media, follow you, so, all of that good stuff? Um, if you want to follow the show, uh, we're on social platforms, social media platforms as December, uh, completely spelled out the number two, the number six ER. So that's December 26th. Um, and we're most active probably on IG, but you can find this uh, across the board. We have a website, December 26th.com. If uh, you're looking for me specifically, I will readily admit that I'm terrible with social media. Cause again, I'm spinning plates. I, I got a lot going on, um, <laughs> but I'm on Instagram as DJG law. So that's D as in Delisha, JG law. Um, you can find me on there as well. And if you just want to reach me personally and drop a line, um, you can, of course, do that through uh, the December26er.com website or uh, just drop me a line at info at December26er.com and we'll get right back to you uh, for sure. And I try to practice what I preach. So if you're local to uh, the New York City area, you just want to meet for coffee and get deeper into this whole law thing, startup, you know, founder thing please feel free to reach out. I do try to make time for that. If you're not local, you know, we can hop on Skype 
or a phone call and make that happen as well. Nice, nice. And that's really good. Well, you know, I've learned a lot uh, in this conversation. Definitely sure our listeners did too. Um, we really appreciate you taking out the time to Alicia to come chat with BHD. Um, it's definitely been a pleasure. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll make sure we get our listeners, keep promoting and get you out, get them to tune in at December 26th. Or, thank you, you know, so much. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. Yes, thank right. you. It's a pleasure. Take care. Take care. All right, Dad. So what you think about Delisha coming to join us, dropping them dimes and gems? You know, I actually feel very motivated after talking mm-hmm. to her, you know, and thinking about like even BHD as a business, as something that I'm invested in and that I want to grow. It made me think about like, you know, what could I be doing every day? How, you know, how can we be investing in this and like even building networks to ensure that what we doing is is growing and, you know, doing well. So mm-hmm. I feel motivated. Yeah, I feel motivated. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, she was like, you know, cutting out the TV. I was like, oh, I need to do that. I really need to do that. And I always say that to myself, but I just can never get around to doing it, you know. And I know if I do, I would just have, you know, so much time if I use that time productively. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, TV is one of my biggest weaknesses and I got to figure out a way to overcome that. Yeah. You know what? My biggest weakness is probably getting into arguments on like online message boards. (laughs) It's not a good use of my time when, you know, I could be engaging in fruitful conversations with BHD listeners on social media or something like that. (laughs) It's like, you know, uh, you know, kind of speaking of that, like I really am going to like subscribe and listen to her podcast because I am, I'm one of those people you know, I will work my behind off up into a deadline and then I press that submit button and then I'm like dormant for like the longest time. It's <laughs> I can find another big day or a big deadline. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I'm not as productive. Like if, if you look at it as a graft or something like that, I'm not as consistently productive as I could be you know I want to at the end of 2019 I want to be able to look at a graft of my productivity and it's just like kind of like a upward you know trajectory instead of like a you know multiple curves like up (laughs) yeah that is one of the realest things uh that was discussed in this conversation um because I'm pretty similar I wonder and you know I've noticed this I've been thinking about a lot I say with this past year or so you know I I think it stems from thinking about how I was in graduate school and like now like what really gets me keeps me productive and it's literally like she said having a lot of plates spinning when I when I have a lot to do I'm like, I, I'm very productive with everything. You know, I, I'm going to the gym consistently. I'm, I'm doing all my work consistently. I'm making time for, you know, friends and family. Cause it's like all like, I don't know what about having a lot of things to do makes me just like a way more productive person. But then when I have very little to do or a lot of free time, I'm just like chilling and everything falls off and I'm not going to the gym. It's like, it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> and, and so I guess that can explain like, even like yourself, like people like us, like when we have a lot, we work real, real hard. And then we take this break and then we just like are slouches. And it's yeah. like, how can we have that, keep that upward trajectory of being productive over time? You know, mm-hmm. I think 
think part of the issue or or part of the reason that spinning more plates, you're able to be more productive is because you think you won't have time for anything. So mm. you're like, let me get this done. Let me get this done. Because you think you're going to run out of time with everything that's there mm. versus when you have you know, emptied your plate and, you know, you, you have a lot of free space to get a, a small number of things done. You're telling yourself, I have time. Yeah, that's what, that's what it is. Yeah. Too much time. Man. Yeah. Uh-huh. Too much time. And, you know, I don't ever want to get back to spin, spinning my plate to the point where I'm like really stressed because that can cause like stress True. and anxiety. But it's kind of like I want to choose a, a core group of things that I just really want to dedicate my time to and mm-hmm. do so consistently and at a just really high level in terms of my investment in it and hoping that it, it will pay off and that I will, like I said, just remain really productive. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And that was some, that was some good advice, you know. Some some of it I wasn't ready to hear yet, but uh, <laughs> it was good advice nonetheless, you know. I would say another thing that kind of came up, and I'm happy she kind of highlighted this, is on BHD when we you know try to inform and educate people, and we use statistics and and things of that nature. We do so because we want to let you guys know what happens on average. So she kind of talked about the difficulties that black entrepreneurs and women entrepreneurs and et cetera experienced in, you know, finding networks and finding capital. And she, you know, stated that it doesn't mean that, of course, like a white entrepreneur doesn't experience these things. But when we talk about what happens on average, it is more difficult for that population. And so. I just think that's a good point to reiterate because we always talk about what happens on average. And it's one of the reasons that we focus our conversations on marginalized populations is not to say that uh, majority populations never experience trauma or struggles or, you know, whatever it is we're talking about. But it's also important to highlight what happens most often or on average. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those things. People always, when you say averages, they're always looking for the few cases that say otherwise, but that's that's just not what it's about, right? You're always, nothing is perfect. Nothing is absolute. You're always going to find outliers. You're always going to find people trending in different directions. But for the most part, we're talking about generally, what are you, what do you see? What are the trends? What is more likely to happen? You can't really dispute that. And then when we say these things, like Daphne said, it's not to say that. Uh, a white person is not going to get any capital. A white person is not going to get any opportunities. No, of course there are white people who experience similar things, but the likelihood of that happening is higher for black folk. And especially what Delisha said, especially black women. Right. And, and so that's what you're saying. So when we're looking at these differences, I mean, in no way, shape or form, could you say 1%, 1%, I mean, that's insane, yo. And then we wonder why, you know, how that's, we have all these other, economic issues when it comes to inequality and not having opportunity. Well, it's like we're not even getting opportunity. You know, if 98, 99% of, of, of available capital are going to people who are not of color. And, it, and it's sad because it's like, dang, man, like how many awesome, great ideas that black folk have that are not being heard or not giving the opportunity to potentially change the world, right? Because all these white folks are sitting in these spaces and not giving the capital or the money to invest and, and, mm-hmm. and 
us, right? Um, so that sucks a lot. Yeah. But, you know, I like like we said towards the end of the conversation, I think, and this is kind of the mind frame that I've been really, you know, pushing. And then when I talk to people now, I'm like, yo, I'm tired. Of, I'm just tired of asking white folk for stuff, you know, as just as a, as a, as a community, as a group, like, like we just need to stop, stop asking white folk for stuff and figure out how we can do it on our own, you know, mm-hmm. on our own, because clearly we will just not, they will never give us half of what they got. Mm-hmm. It's not, not going to do it. And so it's it's time to invest in ourselves and trust our folks more and treat them properly. Mm-hmm. Don't be asking for no homie discount. Yeah, I was just about to say that requires that you giving the exact same respect you would to a, a white or other business owner. You would give that same respect to your people. And I mean, actually, that leads to a, a deeper or historical conversation about how black businesses and, you know, black ownership was viewed as like less than or inferior to white businesses following, uh, you know, integration efforts. Um, so that that's kind of taking it historically, but that's a cycle. That is a chain that has to be broken. It has to, it has to be broken. Um, so yeah, we'll see. You know, I think it's very interesting and I'll watch a lot of these, you know, this is kind of one of the first generations of black folk that are um, accumulating a lot of wealth, whether we see these entertainers, people like Jay-Z and them and Diddy and them. And, you know, I think Rihanna's on her way to becoming a billionaire very soon uh, for everything she's doing with Fenty, Fenty and, and beyond, right? I think she's starting something else too, I think. Um, I can't remember what it was. I don't know if it's some kind of clothing line or something. Um, she's about to get jump into something else. But anyway, so it's like, okay, now you guys are accumulating a lot of wealth closing in on becoming billionaires, you know, maybe you guys could be the catalyst of change to make sure we get more opportunities for our people, you know, and creating some kind of venture capitalist things and, and investing in these startups and, and, and getting us off our feet since nobody else is doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, great conversation with Delisha. Um, appreciate her stopping by again, dropping them gems, dropping the knowledge and, and being very candid and open and honest. Uh, definitely. If you haven't go check out her podcast, December 26er, I promise you, you'll gain a lot of insights again from people who have been doing this stuff or new or been doing it for a while. Uh, you'll, you'll learn a lot about their journeys and it will motivate you in a lot of different ways. Um, other than that, if you haven't, you can follow us on social media at BHC Podcast. We're on Twitter, F- Facebook, and Instagram. Visit our website, www.blackandhollyandjagers.com if you want to keep up with our latest content, see what's going on. Um, continue to uh, review and rate us on iTunes if you haven't done that yet. Um, and then other than that, share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies, and as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.